Last week we talked about Amuna, and we dipped our toe into the vast ocean that is Amuna. It's such a vast subject. And last week we spent the time just trying to frame what are the borders of the subject. What's the, like, how expansive is it? How pervasive is Amuna in, in Jewish life? And the result is, the answer is that it's everything. The Talmud says, if you want to distill all of Torah, all the mitzvos, sit 13 into one core underlying principle, v'tzadik bemunaso yechia. A tzadik lives with Amuna. With that sentence, that three-word sentence, you could encapsulate and capture all of Torah. So obviously, what that means is that when someone shakes a lulav on the holiday of Sukkot, or someone sends away the mother bird when they uh, want to take the baby, or someone who observes Shabbos, or someone who doesn't break the bone in the Pesach offering, or any one of the hundreds of mitzvos, the real underlying change and transformation is Amunah. So obviously, this is not a midah that is cut and dried. Let's say we could kind of discuss it in a half hour and cover it from top to bottom. By definition, really, any time we're talking about anything involved uh, with Jewish life and growth, we're talking about a variant of Amuna. So there's a few ways we could go with this. We could talk about, well, how is it possible to say that every mitzvah has to do with Amuna? We made the claim, the Talmud made the claim, that Amuna is pervasive. It covers every aspect of Jewish life. That's a claim that we made. And obviously, you should be asking questions. Rabbi, wait a second. How can we say that Amuna covers everything? What about other things? What about other laws and other customs and other traditions and holidays and all these things? What do they have to do with faith, with Amuna? These, that's a very good angle that we could maybe spend a semester on. Another semester we could spend, probably, is maybe even a whole lifetime, on how do we accomplish it? How do we get a muna? And we said there's many, many levels of a muna. We talked about last week that you have the farmer, and the farmer has reflexive faith. He knows when he plants a seed in the ground, it's going to grow. He can't explain why it works. He doesn't understand how it works. He can't articulate the machinery of of the transformation of a inedible seed mixed with inedible soil covered with water and sunlight and time turns into trees. You can't explain that. But he knows it's true. That's a very advanced level of Amuna. What about the very basic levels of Amuna? What about when you have a child and the child's six years old and you tell him, by the way, oh, you should know the Almighty existed, exists, he created the world, he created you. He takes care of you. He loves you. That's also a muna. And how many stations are there along the way from where someone starts to have a relationship with God or at least to expose their mind to the notion that there is an Almighty who created heaven and earth? Just to have that idea even culturally to be taught about it, to be inculcated by someone else, that's step one. 
But what's the last step? Well, there isn't a last step. You know why? How do we know there's not a last step? Because the greatest man that ever lived is Moshe. And the Torah has one significant episode of criticism of Moshe. And that particular episode says that Hashem tells Moshe, you don't have emuna in me. Ya'an lo he'emantem bi. What that essentially means, that even Moshe didn't reach the end, because there is no end. There is no end. How could you possibly have an end, unless you're God himself? And Moshe, indeed, we're told by the sages, Moshe was like an angel. And even the angels don't get it fully. So all criticism of, of humans can also be distilled back to this principle. All growth is trying to achieve a muna. All limitations that people have is rooted in the muna. It's everything. And there is no destination. The destination is how great can you become? You have 70, 80, 90, 100 years in your life. Let's see what you could grasp. The Talmud tells us that this world is like you're thrown into Disneyland. It's just that the all the fun things around you are gold and silver. How much could you scoop into your pockets before the time is up for you have to leave? That's what it is. They have these television shows that people get 60 seconds or 60 uh, in, in like a store. How many stuff can you shove into your cart? And who can get the most money? They have those, you know, these programs, these fundraisers or whatever. That's what we're here. We have 60, it's not 60 seconds, thankfully. It's 60 years and we don't know how long it's going to be. But there's gold and diamonds and jewels and free cash lying everywhere. And how much can you scoop up? Because there's no way you can get it all. Because even Moshe, who was scooping up his whole life, didn't get it all. How much could you get? Of course, the problem is that we don't see them as diamonds. We see them as hassles. Every mitzvah. Oh my goodness, so many details, so much minutia. No one walks over to a, a huge rock, a stone, a diamond, and says, oh my goodness, it got so many angles, and it's got so much scintillating color, and it's so heavy. Oh, what a pain. What a, what, what, what a schlep. We don't say that because we recognize that it's valuable. The problem is, is that there's a filter layered above our eyeballs. The filter is called the Yetzirah, and it takes all the diamonds and makes it look like hassles and pains. And what a drag. Oh, oh my, another mitzvah. Oh my goodness. How could you possibly... Goodness, I already did a mitzvah yesterday. How many more mitzvahs can I handle? Uh, and that's the, our problem. That's our problem. But the opportunity is unbelievable. It's incredible. And by the way, as an aside, do you know what actually happens when you die? The process of death is that little film, the little visor that was distorting your vision, the Yetzirah, that made you not realize that there's diamonds everywhere, that gets removed. And you know what you realize? You realize that you had it. You had the winning ticket. And you ripped it up. That's what you realize. You had it. You had your dream. All your dreams you could possibly fantasize about. It was there in your hands. And you let it slip. For what? For what? What did you give it up for? Your whole life you're dreaming about this lottery, right? The biggest one ever. What are you going to do 
Where are you going to go? How many islands in the Bahamas are you going to buy with all the money? You're finally going to be able to lord over your friends because you have more money than they do. It's going to be great. And you actually win. But you thought you lost. You don't realize that you won. And you're like, ah, I can't believe it. Another loss. What a waste of time. Let me go watch television. And then next day you realize, oh gosh, I got the winning note ticket and I ripped it up. That's what happens. We're here in this world and there's mitzvahs everywhere. The Talmud tells that King David was depressed because he was taking a shower. Most of us, it's the other way around, right? When you're depressed, you take a shower. He was taking a shower, he was depressed. Why? Because in the shower, he doesn't have his tefillin. He doesn't have mezuzah. He can't study Torah. And then he was mollified by the fact that he still could do mitzvahs while in the shower. What King David realized, and what the great people who actually accomplish a lot in life, what they realize, is that a mitzvah is not a drag it's an opportunity, and it's a, it's an opportunity that totally blows away any other opportunity you could possibly have in life. It's the grandest opportunity. It's a golden ticket. To compare it to anything is insane, because one second of Olam outweighs all of this world. It's the greatest opportunity you could possibly have. And that's why they're scooping mitzvahs all the time. And everyone's like, oh, why are you doing mitzvahs? Why don't you come with us to the ball game? Why don't you come with us to the track? Why are you wasting time? There's so much other fun stuff to do. And they look at them, why would someone go to the track? Why would someone waste their time when there's diamonds and gold and free cash and piles of goodness there for the taking? All you got to do is just scoop scoop them up in your pocket. How many mitzvahs can you stockpile? Stockpiling mitzvahs. It's just free. It's unbelievable what the Almighty gives us. We're in... The shopping center, we have the cart, we, can, we have 60 seconds or 60 years to put as many Rolexes inside. How, how much can we get? But instead, we say, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to I go relax. I want to be entertained. I want to go eat in all these restaurants. I don't have time for mitzvahs. It's too religious. I'd rather do other things. But that is all the result of the Yetzirah. He just don't, and, and the pain, it's, it's, it's incredible. The Talmud says here, the pain, we're talking about Gehenna, right? It's a sensitive subject because it's punishment. It exists. There are sources about it. But at its core, the sources tell us that the pain is not external. We imagine pain as someone committed a felony and now he's going to have prison. And the felony was one thing and the prison is another thing. Someone, God forbid, commits murder, well, they get executed. Or someone runs a red light and they get a fine of $300, right? There's the sin and then there's the penalty. Our sources make it clear. In Judaism, the sin itself is the penalty. Well, how could the sin be the penalty? All you have to do is for someone to realize that the sin was a terrible misuse of their time and opportunity. All you have to realize is 
this, what's the sin? What, what, what's the penalty of someone ripping up the winning lottery ticket? What's the penalty? Where's the, they get punished. Where's the punishment? No one hit them. No one smacked them. They don't have to go into jail or solitary confinement for a year. Why is there so much pain? It's pain because of what they did. What they did themselves, that is what causes the pain. It's not something external. It's the realization of what could have been. And what, what a terrible decision and kind of hits home. What, what did I do? What was I thinking? Such anguish as a result of not something external. Your mind is going to hit you and smack you and no, like that. It's a much deeper, profound anguish and disappointment with decisions. So that's all that's Amuna. Amuna is okay. We're here in this world. And we have a distorted view of what we're here for. Mishnah tells us we're here in this world. It's a corridor before Olam Abba. You're getting ready for Olam Abba. That's what we're here. What, what do you do in a corridor? It's a path. It's a hallway towards a destination. You start at the beginning and you progress your way to the end. And it's kind of like the, uh, you know, in the football stadiums, right? So they have the tunnel where they come through, right? The, the whole reason why they're going through the tunnel is only to get to the stadium. But what do we do? In our heads, we don't think about the stadium. The Yetzirah, that's that film over our eyes, the distortion, the virtual reality. He tells us, no, 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 no. There is no destination. You're not heading to the destination. Your game is here. The Talmud tells us that there's four, there's four entities, there's four potions that negate the Yetzirah. And the power of negating the Yetzirah is that it provides clarity. Because the Yetzirah, what it does, it causes distortion. You don't see clearly. And your mind, you're like, I'm not thinking about the stadium. I want to stop. I'll live life over here in the corridor. And then you come to the stadium and you're not prepared. And you're under-equipped and you're malnourished. That's the problem. But that's a result of the Yetzirah. Yetzirah causes a distortion. Well, if you could, for one minute, kind of pull away the visor that he puts in front of your eyes and see clarity... Well, then you could recalibrate your priorities. So the Talmud says, well, there's four things that do that. And one of them is to remember the day of death. And that's a very powerful emotion. And it's a fact. We all know this. Everyone sitting here knows this. We are all going to die. That's the human condition. There's been billions of people that have lived. Every single one of them shares a common fate. Where do we come from? Where do we go to? That And that's the Mishnah tells us. You want to not sin? Look at three things. Look where you came from. Look where you're going to. And look before whom you're going to give an accounting, accounting and a reckoning. But this is, it's interesting. There's a, there's a disconnect. We all know that we're heading to, we're all going to die. And that our body's going to stop working. Four hours later, whatever, to mortis. And then hopefully they'll bury us in a Jewish cemetery with a Kaver Kadisha. And they'll put us on the ground, our body in the ground, that is. And uh, we're going to be food for the maggots. 
And that's not inspiring, but it's true. Sometimes the truth is not inspiring. But it's a very powerful thought because it puts life in perspective. You realize that your ambition and drive and investment in a world that's steadily depreciating. You're in a world here, you know that your life, your experience in this world, there's a shelf life. It's not going to last forever. You're investing in something temporary. If you're investing in the corridor, it's in something temporary. And that's a very powerful recognition. And even if you don't think about Olam Abba, forget about Olam Abba for a second. Think about this world. We don't know what's happening after we die. Forget about that for a second. Let's not even look at the evidence. But do we know what's going to happen before we die? We're going to live. And what happens when we die? We're going to die. That we all agree on. So everyone agrees that one thing's certain, that whatever investment you make in your situation in this world is an investment that is guaranteed to go down to zero when you die because you're dead. What value do you have from it? So regardless of whether or not you think about Olam Ba and the eternal life, and forget about that. What's certain, what's incontrovertible is that whatever you stockpile for this world has zero value for you once you're dead. No, it does have some value. You take it back to your kids. You could, I don't, it does uh, for sure. But for you, it ends when you die. You think about that, it's a very powerful thought. It's a very sobering thought. And that really puts life in perspective. And the Yetzirah, whose whole goal is to say, look at this world, man, look at this world. Right? Just don't, don't think about the future. Right? It's all about here and now. It's all about your body, this world. Forget about anything else. That's what the Yetzirah does. And that creates the source. You're not thinking about mitzvah. Mitzvah, why, why would I do a mitzvah? What does the mitzvah do to help my situation here? The answer does nothing to improve your situation here. It doesn't improve your situation here. A mitzvah is investment for... The stadium, it's for Olam Abba. That's what it is. And you're stockpiling the gold. That, that's what a mitzvah is. Yitzvah says, why would you want to do a mitzvah? What a way, how does a mitzvah help you here? Show me someone who was able to take a mitzvah to the bank and uh, use it as a down payment. Show me someone. It doesn't exist. That's what the Yitzvah tells him. You know what you do? How do you respond? How do you get a moment of clarity? You say, well, wait a minute. I'm going to die is that, is that fair? We all know we're going to die? Remind him the day of death, says the Talmud in Brachos 5a. Because when you remind him the day of death, all his powers dissipate. Everything just fizzles away. Like a little smoke. So powerful. Like a little, little firecracker. It's so loud and so bright, and then it's just nothing. A little wisp of smoke. That's what happens at the Yetzirah. Because you're showing him, you're demonstrating with absolute clarity that his arguments and his investor advice is for sure guaranteed to go back to zero. That's certain. We can argue about all above. That's, that's fine. That's a good argument to have. But what we know is that he's selling you a bag of goods. Because he's telling you to invest in this world. And what's the end? It's just more food for the worms and maggots. It's not inspiring, but it could change your life. Because it's a moment of clarity and you could, you have an opportunity to build again your worldview. We're not saying this world has no value. It has exceptional inordinate value. But its value is not essential. It's relative. 
Its value is that it's the only way to get to the destination. You want to get to the stadium? Great. The, there's only one way to do it. It's going through this world. What a valuable world. It's the opportunity to stockpile all the mitzvahs. What, incredibly valuable world. We don't discount this world. No, if we didn't have it, how would we achieve our destination? But is it a value as a destination? That's what the Yitzharah says. You're reminded of the day of death, and you realize that he's selling you a battery of goods for sure. He's the snake oil salesman for sure. Why do we listen to him? Imagine, you know, now there's the whole uh, global warming brouhaha. So politics aside, let's assume you have an opportunity to buy prime real estate, beachfront. You're going to build a beautiful retirement home. You worked your whole life. You want to retire in a beautiful, right next to the beach, beautiful island. It's great. What a way to spend the rest of your life. Fantastic. But someone comes and says, you should know, every, every six months, the water is encroaching upon the beach. And within a couple of years, the whole island is going to be underwater. Be careful. Be wary. You're building a beautiful, opulent home. It's going to be a nice coral reef for a bunch of sea creatures. Is there anyone in their right mind that will say, this looks like a really great investment. Look at it. Look at the look of the water. It's so beautiful. It's green water, nice white sand. Prime place to retire, to build a house, and think about how much it's going to appreciate it. (coughs) That's a terrible investment. Because you know it is heading down to zero. You're investing in... Bear Stearns in 2006, or for that matter, all the other financial companies, right? This is Enron. It's too good to be true, right? But it's, it's like you're investing in Enron. It's like, it's like a time traveler investing in Enron. Can you imagine? Someone who, someone who travels back to 1999 says, I know what I want to invest in, long-term investing. I want to invest in Enron. But you know it's going down to zero. It's worthless. You know that it's worthless. We're all time travelers from the future. You know that? All of us. Why? Because what's the benefit of a time traveler? They know the future. So we're time travelers, right? We are, right? We all know the future. What's the future? Where are we going to end up? We're all going to die. We're time travelers. Okay, let's act accordingly. Are we going to invest in Enron now? Are we going to invest in Bear Stearns? Are we going to build a house on the beach? It doesn't seem to be logical, right? Let's try to think of something that's lasting. We're trying to build a legacy to do something permanent, you you don't build a house on the beach that's going to disappear in a couple of years. You don't invest in Bear Stearns or any one of the other companies that are going under. We know we're going under. That's a fact. It's a very powerful thought because what you're doing is you're showing the Yetzirah what you're selling is a bunch of nonsense. That's for sure. We could argue about it all, but we could have a debate. That's fine to have a debate. But let's put things, let's know what we can agree upon, what, what we have evidence to support. We know as time travels to the future, all of us sitting here, everyone watching online, everyone listening online, everyone in the world, everyone that you know, your cousins, your grandparents, grandchildren, your spouse, your colleagues, your friends, people you admire, celebrities, everyone's going to die. That's fact. So their investment here is swiftly diminishing. You remember the day of death, you could recalibrate your life for a Muna. The people, the Tzadikim, were obsessed with this question. They were obsessed with the question, 
how do we do mitzvahs while we sleep? Do you know why they were obsessed with this question? Because they recognized the value. They knew that a mitzvah is free cash money. They knew it was gold and diamonds. How could you possibly sleep if there's such an opportunity available? They, therefore, they were obsessed with this question. How do we do mitzvahs while we're sleeping? That sounds to us like it's bizarre, right? How do you do mitzvahs while you're sleeping? You're sleeping, right? And they came up with a solution. They found a solution. It's uh, almost as if they found like a robot to scoop up the diamonds for them, right? And they had a solution. And their solution was, if I do mitzvahs the entirety of the day, I don't stop for a second, and comes nighttime, and I just fall asleep while I'm doing mitzvahs, and then I wake up, I start doing mitzvahs right away, I'll tell God, listen, the only reason why I slept was because I needed to sleep. But had I not slept, I would have done mitzvahs. We have two opportunities here. We have an opportunity to invest in a permanent self, and we have an opportunity to invest in our temporary self. Both of them are available for us. We can invest in the corridor, and we can invest in the stadium. The Yetzirah says, choose one and neglect the other. Choose this world and neglect Olam Abba. Choose everything that involves your body and neglect and ignore everything that involves your soul. That's the problem. The problem is that, is, is that it's, there's an opportunity cost. What the Yetzirah is telling you is to choose one and abandon the other. So yes, of course, everyone's, bo- everyone's body is going down to zero. But everyone's soul lives forever. That's precisely the point. If our soul didn't live forever, then it would be a wash. Our soul does live forever, and thus, at the same time, we have the opportunity to choose permanent or tertiary, ephemeral or eternal. That's our choice. The secret is, people say, you know what? You know what I'll do? Rabbi, you convinced me. That's what people say. Rabbi, I give and you convinced me. It's logical. You're just speaking like a good financial advisor for the soul. Fine. You know what I'll do? I'll suffer in this world. I'll suffer. And, but at least I'll have all of my bar. I'll, I'll give up my temporary self in order to benefit my permanent self. That's what people will say. The truth is, and this is the secret, and this is the coup. The trick, the truth is that you're not giving up anything. The people that live for Olam Abba, they're the people that have more meaning in this life as well. It's not that they're forfeiting one world to embrace the other world. Maybe that's what it seems like. That's what the Yetzirah tries to delude them into believing. But the truth is that they actually have more pleasure here as well. It's a total win-win. They're the ones, the people that are thinking about the future, it's like the delayed gratification, right? Why would someone become a neurosurgeon, spend 12 years not making anything, paying into the system? It's crazy. Well, the answer is you think long-term, right? But think about it. What's the experience of the one guy flipping burgers in my thoughts? I'm getting paid every week. It's amazing. You're, look at this guy. He's working. He's slaving away, and he has to pay. It's insane. Why would someone do that? The answer is, is that, well, not only do they have a brighter future, but even their present is much more meaningful. Someone says, oh, I, I can observe Shabbos, and I'll have Olam Abba, or I could desecrate Shabbos, right? That's a question, right? And it's the classic body-soul paradox. It's you got to make a choice, right? 
Uh, it's the classic question, am I investing in this world, investing in Olam Abba? Shabbos, we're told, Shabbos is me'ain Olam Abba. Shabbos is a little dose of Olam Abba. Clearly, Shabbos is connected to the idea of Olam Abba. It's a separate question, right? We've spoken about this in the past. But I want to tell you a secret. Who actually enjoys it more? The, just, just the experience, the pleasure, just the physical pleasure, not even Olam Abba, just the pleasure. What's a better experience in the corridor? Someone who's living with the grand vision of meaning, of destiny, of a soul. Someone who's, who's living a meaningful life actually has it better. The delayed gratification is actually more gratifying even while it's being delayed because you're th- because it's meaningful. You think you're giving up when you're not giving up any, anything. Yeah. It's actually more pleasurable. What I try to establish is that logically, you'd rather take the flyer Right? If you could put the money on the craps table, right? Just throw it up in the air, right? Put it on red, right? That's still better than investing in the beachfront property that's going down to zero. Strictly with what we can prove already, what we already know as time travelers, <laughs> what we know for sure is that even the doubt of Olamaba is better than the certainty of the depreciation of this world. The belief in the afterlife is not it's not just something that we take as a matter of dogma. That's important because it's actually logical, or at least the framework of it is actually logical once certain things are accepted. Like, for example, like once you accept that um, God exists, right? If that's if that's let's assume that's accepted already, right? I'm just saying not 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 in this not in this not in this particular instance, but I'm saying just there is the idea of a certain domino effect, right? Once we assume God existed, we can already assume that there is some purpose, right? That's just, you know, that's implied. Once you establish one part of a certain logical structure, logical edifice, once you establish God, well, automatically, even though you're not saying it, but implied is that you're accepting the notion of meaning. Because if a person doesn't do something grand without a purpose, certainly not a much greater intelligence, doesn't do something much grander without a purpose. But there's actually books written upon taking this step by step and saying, okay, what do we know? Once we establish one thing, we could actually prove everything else as a result. So uh, that does extend to the afterlife because once we accept the idea of God, and obviously it cannot be an entity that is bound by petty feelings, Right? It has to be something which is, which is obviously a much grander intelligence than we are, and therefore capable, but also inclined, like we said with the meaning thing, to settle accounts. And therefore, when someone says there is no afterlife, they're questioning not a eschatological principle, they're actually questioning a theological principle. Part of our um, definition of God is that God is going to be fair, and the world is not fair, and therefore there must be some other way that God settles the score. It's a much bigger discussion, <laughs> uh, but it's not isolated. So the point is, it's not just like an isolated thing that we accept that there's an afterlife in a vacuum, in a siloed idea. It's part of a grander picture, of course. Is part of part of God's grand grand plan, and also it is mandatory or it's necessitated by our definition of God. Four of Maimonides' thirteen principles of faith relate to reward and punishment.
because obviously if it's a principle of faith, it must be related to core. It's not just something which is ancillary to the model. It's core to the model. And therefore, what he's essentially saying is that God mandates Torah. Torah mandates reward and punishment. Because if if God exists, then there must be some purpose. And there must be a communication of purpose. So that's why once we prove God, says Maimonides, you can prove already prophecy or the notion of prophecy. And prophecy, obviously, uh, that, that Torah is prophecy. God telling us how he wants us to behave. If, if, I, if, I, if you buy a microwave, you'll have a little manual. And the larger the appliance, the larger the manual. What about the whole world? Where's the manual for that? We say that's the Torah. If you have a 747, you don't get a little pamphlet like you get with your Bluetooth earphones, right? It's it's something much grander. So where's God's instructions of how to operate the world? That's the Torah. But that's almost assumed. You know, once you buy a vacuum cleaner, you're already assuming, you know for sure that the intelligent creator of the vacuum cleaner put in it a manual. You know, an operative vacuum cleaner, you plug it in, right? Still, right? There's a manual, right? How do you know? Who told you? Do you believe it? Do you read it in some book? No. It just means that that's part of your understanding of what you are engaging with. An intelligent creator is going to give you a manual. If there is a manual, there's an intended way and then it's not an intended way. If there's free will and there's meaning, then there has to be a reward upon this is My point is, is that this is part of a... It's not just a belief that religious people have, Jews have, Christians, Muslims have. It's actually part of, at least certainly in the classic works of theology, it is linked together to all the other various aspects of, of belief in God. Uh, moreover, the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 90 to 92, uh, spends a great deal of time proving it from the Torah. If you actually read the Torah beginning to end, nowhere in the Torah is it explicit. It's not explicit, but it's very much implicit in the Torah. And the Talmud proves it, I believe, with 15 or 20 pieces of evidence, the, the afterlife. One of them, in fact, was the past week's Parsha. Where in Parsha's Bashalach does it say the afterlife? I don't know. Well, what happens to Parsha's Bashalach? They leave Egypt, and they uh, split the sea, and they have the song... And they have a few mitzvahs afterwards. Okay, well, where does it say anything about splitting the sea? Well, what are the words of the song? How does it start with? Az Yashir Moshe, Uvnei Israel, Eteshirazot Lashem. Then, Az, what does Yashir mean? Shir is a song. What does Yashir mean? Is that past? present, or future. Well, says the Talmud, if you actually, uh, if, in, if it was describing an event in the past, it would say, as Shar Moshe, he sang. Yashir means will sing. Then Moshe will sing. Whoa, when's this other future event? We know Moshe died in the Torah. How does the Torah read today, truthfully, then Moshe will sing? Moshe? Moshe's dead. How can Moshe sing in the future? That's obviously a subtle proof. That's one of the proofs Talmud brings. Implicit in the Torah. It's not, it's not something that they made up, the rabbis made up, you know, 100 years ago or 500 years ago or 2,000 years ago. It's, it's 
it's there in the Torah. Now, yes, is it explicit that there's an afterlife? No. But is there a way to make the text make sense otherwise? Also not. Well, let it be more explicit. So I'm going to ask you another question. As we know in Jewish tradition of answering a question with a question. I have a much better idea. Rabbi, you tell me about the eight who comes and presents distortion to someone and causes people to not realize what they're living for. Why does the Almighty do that? Why not remove the distortion? And all of us can have joy and plenty and wonder. Great question. Now, the truth is, why do we have to have life to begin with, right? Let's just, the Almighty could put us in, in, a, in, a, in a bed and intravenously just give us doses of pleasure and we could all be sitting there strung up and just just totally absorbing greatest pleasure, right? Another good question, right? You get to see everyone just like just all wired up on both arms, just basting in joy and delight and pleasure. Oh, it'll be so fantastic. Well, that's another good question. And the answer is because God wants to make it meaningful. This is, if you ever heard the term bread of shame, that's a little code word for this idea, is that God deliberately chose to make us matter. Angels don't matter. Animals don't matter. Sorry if you have pets. They don't matter. Okay? It itself doesn't matter because you know why? The only thing that matters is something that can choose. And who can choose? Humans and God. That's it. Angels can choose. Animals can choose. Plants can choose. Only man created the image of God can choose, and thus man and God are the only things that matter. Because there's, otherwise there's no variables. If it's no variables, it doesn't matter. We matter. And you say, well, why should we matter? Let the Almighty spell it out. And you know what happens? He spells it out. And there's a lot of ways to make us not matter. Well, one way is to remove the eight Sarah. Because then who's not going to scoop up the diamonds? Everyone's going to scoop up the diamonds. So we lose our choice. We don't matter. If the Almighty says, describes Olam in vivid detail, you know what else happens? We lose our, we lose our free will. If it has to be fuzzy, it has to be kind of, you have to think about it, only then does the Yetzirah wield any power over us. Imagine every time someone sinned, they felt a jolt as if they stuck the finger into the outlet. Well, who would sin? If the Almighty wants, really wants me to stop sinning, let him show me with a bolt of lightning. The answer is, is that no, that's not the way God wants. God wants us to matter. If every time you sin, you get jolted with a bolt of lightning, you don't matter anymore because you're ready. You're, you're like an animal or like an angel. Both of them are, even though they're total opposites of the spectrum, the animal is totally animalistic, totally physical. The angel is totally spiritual, totally soul-like. Neither of them matter. The angel is much higher than us spiritually, but it doesn't matter. Why? Because they can change. They're on a fixed trajectory. Animals don't matter. They got a fixed trajectory. We were half angel, half beast. We're spiritually like the angels. Our souls like the angel. Our bodies like the animal. They're morphed together. We're given the miracle of free will. We can make choices. We're dynamic. We can change. We can become great. We can become terrible. It's our choice. We matter. The Almighty says, I'm not going to spell it out clearly for you. I'm, I'm going to give you the Yetzirah. And that's what the Yetzirah, you know what the Yetzirah, what does the Yetzirah mean? Yetzer means inclination. Ra means evil. So is it a good thing or a bad thing? Well, it's called a bad thing, right? That's its name. 
There's a hint, hint. Maybe it's a bad thing, right? It's a bad thing, but it's a very good thing to have a bad thing. Because if we didn't have the bad thing, we wouldn't matter. You know, angels, they don't have a Yetzirah. They all, they're like an untethered soul. All they do is just the will of God. Let's clap for them. What have you accomplished? All you did is what you were programmed to do. We have a Yetzirah, we have the distortion. And the distortion is terrible because it causes us to make such blunders. We have the, the lottery ticket, we throw it away. We have the gold and we abandon it. We have the diamonds and we ignore it. Terrible thing. But if we didn't have it, we wouldn't matter. And if we don't matter, that's not good. So the Yetzirah says the Talmud. Vayar Elohim Tov me'od. And the Almighty saw that everything he did, and behold, it was exceedingly good. What is the Almighty talking about? Exceedingly, what is this thing that's so, so, so good? Zeh Yetzer Ra. This is the bad, the evil inclination. Wait a minute, it's called bad. How do you possibly reconcile that by saying it's exceedingly good? The answer is that it's bad because it causes us to make mistakes. It's good because it causes us to make mistakes. If we didn't have it, if we didn't have the possibility of making mistakes, we wouldn't matter. Thus, it's, it's a gift that the Almighty gives us. It's the resistance that enables us to overcome and to become great people. Angels are great, but they got there like they were strung up uh, and when they got it intravenously. It's not, they didn't accomplish it. They themselves don't matter. The Almighty could choose to make them or not make them. Well, obviously, everything's in the Almighty's hands, but they have no choice. They themselves cannot create. We can. That's fantastic. And that's thankful. And we thank the Yetzirah. Thank you for giving me Yetzirah, even though it's trying to kill me literally. It's trying to make my life miserable. It's trying to make me suffer. But if I didn't have that, I would just be an automaton. And that's even worse. People look at Adam and the Adam story. And they say, Adam, what were you thinking? What were you thinking? It's like the worst calculation ever. And we know Adam was not a, an imbecile. We look at it, read the story simply, it looks like he made a terrible blunder. The answer is that Adam made a very calculated, thought-out, pragmatic, and sober decision. He said, here is a poison pill. Let me take it. He said, here's a fire let me jump into it. And he watched slowly and deliberately and thrust himself into the fire. That's what he did. Because he knew exactly what he was getting himself into. He knew exactly the implications and he said, you know what? Yes, I am going to swallow the poison. I am going to embrace the Yetzirah. But then what am I going to be? I'm going to come your dad to Torah. I'll know good and bad. I'll be dynamic. I'll have good and bad both as internal motivators. Well, what does that do? Now my life matters. But it's terrible. Why would I do that? You have a Yetzirah. Why would you swallow that? And you know what? To a certain degree, that's a good argument. But Adam made a decision to heighten life, to make life more meaningful, to make our life ever more important, to up the ante of what it means to live. Now the human is torn with all these internal conflicts. We know good, we know bad. Both of them are internal motivators. Now our life has much more meaning. But why would you absorb the Ra? You're asking, you're, you're, you're telling yourself, let me, where do I sign? There's an evil inclination. Where, where do I sign? Where do I, how do I get on board? 
And yes, that's what he did. Tree of Life is the uh, is the antidote. So if you remember the Genesis story, um, Adam he eats from the tree of knowledge, and then he gets kicked out. And the reason why he gets kicked out of the garden is because then he may eat the tree of life, and that's and that's not not a possibility. What else is called the tree of life? Torah is eats chayim he lamachazikim, but Torah is a tree of life. What it means is that Torah is like a virtual tree of life that can negate the effect of the Yetzirah. It says the Talmud, Brasi Yetzirah, Brasi Torah, Talmud, I created the Yetzirah, the Torah as an antidote, because when you, when Adam, when all of us consumed the Yetzirah and said, I want to have this as an internal motivator, okay, now the way you stop it, well, there's an easy way, you pop in the other pill, but no, what Adam says, no, 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 now we're going to see, I'm going to be in the real world, and I'm not going to have the easier way out. There's no way to undo what I did. There's only a very difficult way, the arduous path, and that's the Torah. That's why Torah is called the Eitz Chaim, because it's the exact replica uh, of the Tree of Life. And by the way, what does it say about the Tree of Life? When he's kicked out, when he's evicted from the garden, it says, he may eat from the Tree of Life. Now he's going to go and eat from the Tree of Life and live forever. What does that mean? Live forever. It means that the Torah that we have, the mitzvahs that we have, that's our way to live forever. Because that is our capacity to bolster up our repertoire. That when we get to Olam, but we get to the stadium, we're ready. We took this world for what it really is. And it's a tremendous opportunity. It's a corridor. It's the only way to achieve our destiny. It's the only way to prepare for Olam Abba, it's the only avenue to achieve the eights, Chaim, Hilam, Achzid, Abba, Chayil, Olam, to live forever. We're walking along the corridor, and we have these little virtual, virtual fruits of the tree of life. And uh, we look at it, and we say, we don't want it, right? The eights of says, don't, you don't want that. Uh, just ignore it. There's other things to deal with. But the Mighty says, you know what? I'm going to do, do you a favor. I'm going to tell you what to do. Why is God ruling me? Why is he telling me to do uh, He loves you. That's why. He loves you and he cares for you. It's precisely akin to a physician. You go to a physician, you have a terrible illness. What do you do? You go to a physician, the best guy in town. And he, he prescribes a very sophisticated dosages of very esoteric drugs. What does he know? I'll take this kind of drug, I'll take that. I'll, I'll, I'm not going to follow his instructions. Well, that would be insane, right? He's the expert. But the greatest doctor in the world, the most skilled physician out there, is not a tenth of the expert that God is in a much more sophisticated malady that life is as well. And the wife says, I'll give you the precise measurements, everything you need to know, like those seniors that they have that huge pillboxes. And as they, as they get older, <laughs> The pillboxes get bigger, <laughs> and they get at more regular intervals, and they get deeper, right? That's what the Torah is. It's this huge pillbox, and there's 613 little pills in there. And each pill, it's all perfectly crafted, FDA approved. This is God telling us, this is how you mo- manage and navigate your way through this illness that is humanity. We, we, Adam did it, something terrible. He absorbed an illness 
for all of us. We're suffering because of his decision. We're ill now. But, the man says, I have a tree of life for you. I have the perfect antidote, the perfect recipe for you to resolve your malady, to remedy your illness. And we say, this one? I don't like this one. I'm not, not, not for me. Uh, this pill? Ah, it's kind of a little too green. I don't know. What does it do? I kind of, we kind of look at it. You examine it, the little capsule, open it, smell it. Doesn't smell like anything. I don't need this one. And we start throwing out one and we don't realize what their function is. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something interesting. This was Parsha. Parsha's Yisro. Talks about Yisro. And we read about Yisro comes and he's the guy from corporate and says, I'm going to do this cost saving measures. I'm going to make it more efficient. I'm going to make this hierarchy. I'm going to make it scalable, right? That's what he comes in and says, well, Moshe, you're the Supreme Court. And then the, there's a, there's every thousand people has one guy in charge, every ten people, every fifty people, a hundred. Fine. Great. That's the first half of the Parsha. Second half of the Parsha, Ten Commandments. This is Parsha, Ten Commandments, chapter 20 of Exodus. And you read the Ten Commandments and everyone knows them. And it's the, you know, the core underpinning of uh, Judeo-Christian values. And it's, everyone knows it, it's, right, it's the Ten Commandments, right? And you read the first one, I'm the Lord your God, I took you out of the land of Egypt. Pretty straightforward. What's that? That's a Muna, faith in God. And what does it mean? It just knows some truism. This is, God exists, he took us out of the land of Egypt, i.e. he's involved with us in our day-to-day lives. Great. Don't have any other foreign gods. And you read all the lots, all the Ten Commandments, and what's the last one? Thou shalt not covet. Don't covet your neighbor's wife, his house, his car, his bank account, his animal, his ox, his donkey, his garment. Don't covet anything of your fellow. And the question is, the Torah is obviously reasonable, and it doesn't make unreasonable demands from us. And it seems like up to the last one, at least, it's reasonable. And then it says, don't covet. And what that's telling us is, don't have a desire. doesn't say, when you covet your neighbor's wife, don't commandeer her. Or, when you covet your neighbor's house, don't come and offer to buy it or steal it. That's not what it says. It says, don't even desire it. Well, how's that fair? Are we in control of our desires? Can we oversee what we covet and what we don't? So there's a famous commentary of the Ibn Ezra, Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra, one of the early Rishonim, Sephardic Rishonim. And he writes like this. He says there's a thread that is going through a continuum from the beginning of the Ten Commandments to the end of the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments is a condensed version of all of Torah. Rabbi Sa'ad Yagon, one of the Ga'onim who preceded Ibn Ezra, he wrote a famous poem in which he delineated the Ten Commandments and how all 613 mitzvos are categorized within these ten principles. So it's a really highly concentrated version of all of Torah. You want a kind of a, a little condensed version? Give me the uh, cliff notes of Torah. Ten Commandments. Moreover, says the Ibn Ezra, what you're trying to do here, what you're trying to see is kind of where you start and where you end. You start with the idea of faith. 
God exists. He took you on the land of Egypt. He's evolved. That's kind of in the cognitive realm. Where's the end game? Where does this end? Where does this bring us towards? What about once we go through the entirety of the Torah? Where do we end up? Thou shalt not covet. If the belief in God is not something that's relegated to your mind, to your cognitive sphere, it has permeated and penetrated your innards, and you actually live by this reality that we spoke about last week, a tzaddik lives with the moon. It's something that becomes reflexive, intuitive, instinctual. That's the end game. The end game of Amuna, of faith, is that it's not an idea, it's a way of life. A tzaddik lives with Amuna. And the example we gave last week, the farmer plants, well, how does he know that it's going to result in fruit? Well, he lives by that principle. If that's the way we have faith in God, that it actually goes to the most basic elements of our physiology, we'll know that God is really micromanaging everything and he gives everyone what they need to accomplish their goal. So he gives me what I need for my goal and he gives Dave what he needs for his goal and everyone gets what they need for what they need to accomplish. And that's why the tzaddikim, they don't negate even the most minor things. Jacob, he's missing a few little jars. Jacob's one of the wealthiest people in the world. But he left a few jars across the other side of the river. These little empty, uh, half-empty uh, corn uh, jars. He goes back and gets it. Says the Talmud, do you know why? Because tzaddikim, they value their money like they value their life. Whoa, what? How do you value money like you value life? The answer is, is that they view their life and their money as the same. Both of them are tools to achieve Olam Abba. We're here in this corridor. Everything in the corridor is, up, is, is tools to accomplish my end goal, which is Olam Abba. Thus my life and my money. Well, which money? Is it only my, the, only the thousand dollar denominations, the ten thousand? No, everything. A few little vials, you leave it on the other side, you value it. That's what it means to be a tzaddik. A tzaddik is someone who realizes that everything's from God. But he also realizes that what the neighbor has, that was given to him by God, to him and not to me, because it's not mine, it's not for me. I don't even desire it at all. Why would I want someone else's stuff when I realize intuitively that that is his and not mine? And it could penetrate to such a degree that it actually affects the way we interface with the world. We're not even going to desire something. It's, it, it's, it's unimaginable to us. It's like, do you, do you desire that you grow wings and start squawking around like a bird? Is that something you even desire? No. That's not even, that's not even within the realm of, of, of reality for you, right? It's, you don't even think about it. If your amuda becomes so palpable, so so rudimentary, so basic in your life, that's the end game of Torah. That's after the Ten Commandments, after all of Torah, that's the result, where the Amuna is so pervasive that it really changes the way you interact with the world. It becomes a reality. And if it becomes a reality, everything that is without of that, outside of that reality is asinine. To cover someone else's stuff, it won't make sense. It's not something that's within the realm of possibility. Just like you don't, 
dream about growing wings and flying around like a little bird. You don't dream about. You don't even think about it. Why would you even think? Did anyone? Did anyone say? Well, you know what? Oh, I really desire this. I, I, but how do I stop coveting having wings? No, you don't even think about it. You don't even entertain the possibility. Similarly, once the amuna becomes, th- once the, the the thread, so to speak, is done, where does it bring you? Thou shalt not covet. And indeed, that's rea- that can be demanded of someone because the Torah has very high expectations with, uh, from us. It demands that we convert. What begins as an abstract idea, I'm the Lord, you're going to slaughter of Egypt, it's an abstract idea. And eventually, over the course of life as a Jew and Torah, it becomes the governing principle. The what is given, what is assumed, and everything else becomes tertiary. And thus, the neighbor's wife is something that, or the neighbor's stuff, that you would never even entertain in a million years to even think about desiring or coveting, it won't even happen. It's not natural for you to think, to want or desire that. So that's this week's parsha. Uh, I wanted to talk about how we actually do this. I look forward to seeing everyone next time. This was delightful.